This episode is brought to you in part by Little Diva's Balloon Decorating. For over 11 years, Little Diva's Balloon Decorating has turned events into experiences and celebrations into parties. Birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, family reunions, graduations, and any event you can imagine, Little Diva's can bring it to life. Specializing in balloon sculptures, cake table, and doorway arches and more. Get a hold of Little Diva's now and make your celebration, reunion, or business function one they'll remember. Call 606-791-5616. That's 606-791-5616. Visit them on facebook.com forward slash Little Diva Party Decorations and see for yourself. Little Divas, it's where the memories begin. The following may contain strong language and adult situations with depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. October is an unusual month. It carries with it its own a special blend of oddities, mysteries, and things that make you get chills. But to be sure, it's more than just the cooler temperatures. It's more than just the colder wind. There's something almost supernatural about the month of October. Now, maybe it's because it's Halloween, or maybe it's because... <laughs> well, I don't know. But there is something different about this time of year. So in celebration of this month, we're going to bring you two different stories, each equally unique in its own right and each equally unsettling in its own right. But there is a very simple point to these stories, both of them. Assume nothing and never, ever assume you're safe. There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. There are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Long. Now, this episode is going to be a little different than most, because in between our stories, we're going to have some music that's fitting for the season, or at least we think so. So please, 
Grab yourself something warm to drink. Enjoy. And don't forget to look over your shoulder. John L. Vannersdahl has lived in the now 169-year-old Smith Haven Manor. Now, if you're not familiar with it, it's in Blountville, Tennessee. He's experienced all kinds of things on that property, some of which are just out of this world. And all are too many to mention. And all would seem to be of a paranormal nature, though none have been especially terrifying or disturbing to John. Of course, you've got the bumps and thumps in the night that often come about in this beautiful antebellum farmhouse, especially late at night. And on occasion, eh, you'll see that odd smoky wisp of something that appears to float by the dim light of night and then just disappears. Now, past the downstairs doorway to the lower bedroom where John stays is where most of these visualizations happen. But these occurrences have never caused John any feeling of threat, so it doesn't really bother him. Some emotionally sensitive human visitors have, nevertheless, felt quite uneasy coming into the home or staying on its land. A few people have actually run out of the house screaming and refusing to ever come back, but that has always seemed, to John anyways, to be an overreaction to their own personal fears. But to begin where it began, we go back to the beginnings. Smith Haven Manor was built in 1851 by Major William Smith, who served in the Mexican-American War. A Major Smith and three of his adult sons were brick masons by trade, so this was no problem to them. They built the two-story colonial-style folk-designed farmhouse after that war as Major Smith's retirement home. And the entire lower-level exterior of the home was two brick layers thick. Now, at first, the home sat on 352 acres. The upper level of this solidly constructed house was wood-framed in the property. Well, except for a lot of its original surroundings and land acreage, was purchased in 1993 by the current owner and the very man who wrote this true story. Oh, yeah. It's true. Major William Smith had ten kids in total, and several of his then-adult children lived on the property with him and their mother, Elizabeth, after it was built. During his final eight remaining years in this life, he and his family farmed the property in their little East Tennessee community, and due at the time to it being the finest home in the community, it was also used as the local wake house for family, neighbors, and friends. Whenever anyone in the area died, they would bring their body there for viewing. Back then, there was no official funeral homes. So in order to accommodate the viewings of those who had passed, it was quite common for larger private homes to be used in that matter. Major Smith was killed in November of 1859 when he was thrown by his horse while traveling to town. It was actually Blountville. You see, he was crossing Evans Creek less than a mile west of his estate when, of all things, a flock of geese startled his horse. And though his immediate injury did cause his death, he lived for another 24 hours after the fact. Just long enough to handwrite his last will and testament. Now, he left his land, property, Smithhaven Manor, and personal chateau divided among his kids, the house went to his oldest daughter, Louisa Smith Anderson. 
And this happens quite often even today. So it probably won't be a surprise to you that all the kids went to court. Less than two years after Major Smith died, the American Civil War, the war between the states as it was called, started. That was in April of 1861. By the time of that historic event's beginning, a lawsuit between Louisa Smith and her oldest son, Elbert, had been filed by Elbert suing his sister, claiming that the property was belonging to him. Now, during the war's Battle of Blountville, September 22, 1863, Union forces under the command of General Ambrose Burnside, USA, burned most of the town to the ground, including the county's courthouse, losing all the court records in the fire, except for the county land records, which had been removed illegally before the battle by the county clerk. Well, it's probably a good thing he did that. Smithhaven Manor, to this day, is located just due east of the town of Blountville by about eh, two miles and was in the direct route of the retreating Confederate forces being pursued by the Union Army following the heat of that four-hour battle. Now, there is local legends, of course, that talk about Smith Haven Manor was temporarily used immediately after that battle as a makeshift hospital for civilian casualties. But there's never been any record of civilian deaths due to the major skirmish that's been found anyway. After the war's end in 1865, local records indicate that Major Smith's son, Elbert, apparently won the lawsuit with his sister and became owner of the house. While the property was kept in the Smith family for several generations, eventually passing down to one of Major Smith's granddaughters, Mary Alice Smith Humphreys, born 1880, died in 1949. Mary Alice married a guy named George W. Humphreys, and together they had one daughter, Beulah, who eventually married Wesley Garland of Elizabethtown, Tennessee in 1923. And Smith Haven Manor then became theirs to own and live in after their marriage. Beulah and Wes Garland had twin sons born soon after, but by the fourth birthday of the twins, one died in the house due to a childhood virus, the remaining twin, Lawrence eventually sold the house in 1987, and then it sold again in 1993, purchased by John and Paula. Well, one day, while John was in the hand-dug-out dirt cellar below the house, he found a very faded photograph of a woman holding in her arms two babies. Upon his inquiries to locals, he discovered the history of the aforementioned one-twin who had died at the age of four, in the house. It wasn't long after that that John and Paula moved in, and a lot of strange things. And they started to happen, and it was within a matter of days. Strange happenings within the house that gave the feeling that the house was haunted, but not seemingly haunted in a very scary way. At least John didn't think so. Paula said that she could hear noises at night that concerned her, and out of curiosity, she placed a sound-activated cassette tape recorder in the upstairs bedroom over one whole night. When the tape was played back and slowed down, now, it revealed the distinct sound of a crying small child or children. On a different date, again soon after moving in, John and Paula had some family come to visit. The same upper bedroom mentioned had not yet had the furniture placed in an exact arrangement, but the bed had been assembled for use and 
their then four-year-old niece Jenny slept in that bed. Late that night, screams from that room coming from little Jenny woke up the entire house. And the reason was that Jenny heard noises in the dark. Well, of course, everyone rushed there. When the lights were flipped on, a heavy dresser that had been on one side of the room was discovered to be sitting in the middle of the room. No explanation on how it got moved. A few months after little Johnny's experience, John's parents stayed in that same room. The morning after, John's father related that he had experienced a strange dream. In the dream, he said that a big, nearly bald-headed man who had a cigar stogie hanging in his mouth and who had on overalls appeared to be at the foot of the bed and commanded that John's dad get out of that room. John's dad, who was a gun owner, said that he then picked up the handgun from the bedside table, pointed it at the intruder, and suddenly the apparition disappeared. Later, John described that dream story to another local, who then said, Do you know who you've just described? John said no. And that person then revealed that the description of that apparition at the foot of the bed was an identical match for the former homeowner, Wes Garland, who had died in a farm tractor accident in the year 1969. Turned out, too, that the same bedroom had actually been formerly occupied by Wes Garland prior to his tragic death. Before this revelation by the locals, there had been no knowledge by John or his dad of either Wes Garland's physical appearance or the circumstances of his death. Well, we have to remember that not all spirits are malevolent. With additional related stories and more locals who confirm associated deaths to the property, other episodes of strange experiences kept on happening. But John, John though, he has one special, quote, ghost, end quote, in the house that keeps watch over him. At least he says... It was in the early spring of 1995, just a couple of years after he and his wife Paula moved to Smith Haven, that she died at the young age of 39 from kidney cancer and in the same bedroom that John still sleeps. If it's truly she that comes to visit on occasion, her spirit comforts John rather than horrifying him. She is a loving presence. She's also been encountered by a couple of her old friends who have visited. One close friend of hers, who stayed one weekend just a few years back, woke up in the middle of the night in the room that she'd been sleeping, and she felt as if someone was gently brushing fingers through her hair. Now, she said that encounter did scare her a bit, but she felt certain that it had to have been Paula. Apparently, not all ghosts come to haunt, and that is from John L. Vannersdahl. We'll be back with another blood-curdling tale in just a few moments involving what can only be called a haunting curse. But in the meantime, here's some music to get you in the seasonal mood. Brought to you by Anchor. The best place to create a podcast is on Anchor. And also brought to you by Chris Sloan Media. If you need explainer videos or promotion for your social media or business of any kind, give us a call at 1-800-790-0375. That's 1-800-790-0375.
If you'd like to skip the horror ambience and the spooky music, then fast forward ahead to about the 27 minute and 30 second mark.
Wonderful feeling. Infect the world and create the works of God. We now return to the Mountain Mysteries with your host, Chris Sloan. Okay, so some of those voices that you were just hearing were not special effects. They were actually captured during our live program, which is called The Gatherings. It airs Thursday nights at 9.05 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. No, it was during a segment of the program that we call The Portals. And I can't stress enough that during this program, anything can and many times does happen. You can find it on my personal Facebook page, also facebook.com slash Mysteries, or facebook.com slash Gatherings. And on our YouTube page. Again, that's Thursdays at 9.05 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Anything goes on the gatherings. Now let's get back to our story. Our next part is, well, we've got to go back in history a little bit. The 1770s, it was a difficult time for Western Virginia, and Morgantown was little more than settlement surrounded by a couple of forts, Fort Kern and Fort Coburn. Set on the eastern bank of the Mongolia River, in the shadow of Dorsey's Knob, Morgantown was literally the boundary of colonial settlement. The land to the west over the river was the Ohio country, where legal settlements were prohibited by royal decree. Tension between the European settlers and Native Americans of the region escalated during this time and really threatened a lot of peace. Early in the spring of 1778, a large Native American raiding party came into the region and they were hell-bent on revenge. Their murderous rage was the answer to events perpetrated by colonial settlers in the wake of Lord Dunmore's War of 1774, which included the murder of Native families in the surrounding counties. At the time of the raid... A group of settlers were returning with an armed escort from planting corn about a mile from Fort Coburn. The natives hid in the bushes on both sides of the road to the fort and effectively ambushed the party on their return, firing into the group before they even saw the natives attacking. Now, call it luck, but whatever it was, it was amazing. Most of the settlers managed to get out of there without harm. Only two men and one horse who had been a part of the armed escort, were casualties of the skirmish. Jacob Miller was shot through the stomach, tomahawked and scalped as he died. Another, John Woodfin, who was shot in the thigh, was trapped beneath the weight of his dying horse. Now, as the rest of the party escaped back to the fort, the natives captured John Woodfin, and they wanted to make an example out of this guy. They wanted to make an example out of anybody that would attack and kill Native Americans. Woodfin was taken to the rocks at the top of Dorsey's Knob. And there, overlooking Fort Coburn, the natives tied him to two slender poles, which had been driven into the ground and tied together to form an X. With each of his arms and legs tied fast to a separate end of a pole, 
John Woodfin was then systematically flayed from the top of his head all the way down to the base of his neck. His skinless flesh shone blood red as a beacon of a warning to the settlers in the fort below. Now, Woodfin died of these wounds, of course, on the top of Dorsey's knob. His bloody, disheveled corpse remained in view until the settlers found it safe to retrieve his body for burial in the small cemetery near the fort. However, as a result of his tragic death, John Woodfin is anything except resting in peace. Throughout the century since his death, there have been a lot of people that visited Dorsey's knob and they say they've encountered something. And that something, they say, is John Woodfin. Or, as he is called, the red-headed man. It has nothing to do with his hair. It's said that over the last 242 years, the red-headed man has approached a lot of unsuspecting visitors to Dorsey's Knob. Day or night, makes no difference. He's been spotted by families on picnics, by couples in cars, and hikers exploring the heights of the town's tallest point. But John Woodfin is not a happy ghost. To encounter the red-headed man is to encounter a spirit that's vengeful and angry. His goal is to approach a living individual, attack them, and steal the skin from their face and head to replace that which he lost. Oh, during the attacks, his veiny, unhealed flesh still glistens with wounds. But there is a protection against the red-headed man. Visitors who know the story will carry a small handmade X, basically two sticks tied together with twine, on their windshields or in their pockets, because evidently, John Woodfin is still afraid of that apparatus to which he was tied and tortured on, even in a miniature version. His bloody end came as an unfortunate side effect of living during a very violent time. Of course, you can't have a ghost story without someone dying. And if you ever find yourself on Dorsey's Knob carry with you that small cross of sticks and say a kind word for John Woodfin. He's clearly suffered enough. Remember to check us out on The Gatherings each Thursday night at 9.05 p.m. Eastern Time. This story was researched and written in part by Amanda Collins. On behalf of our team, Stacia Underwood Gullet, Lloyd Big Dog Gullet, Amanda Collins, I'm Chris Sloan for The Mountain Mysteries. Stay mysterious. Follow The Mountain Mysteries on Facebook.com forward slash The Mountain Mysteries, on Instagram at Instagram.com forward slash The Mountain Mysteries, and support us on Patreon. Links are on the homepage, www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. If you enjoy The Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support The Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. 
production of Sloan Studios. Stay mysterious.